Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The self-help took the form of what Bailey calls open debate on why Janice was doing less than past personal bests. There were good reasons for worry. The prospect of increased competition from the breakaway Marsico was the least of them. Unimpeachable top-notch performance was critical to strengthen Bailey's hand in dealing with the KCSI management. It was showing increasing determination to spin off Janus with its lesser mutual fund holdings in a way that could dilute the equity of both Bailey and his portfolio managers, respectively costing them millions. Staff holdings of Janus Capital stock, awarded on performance and valued at close to $300 million, are an essential element of the group's unique culture. In the end, the standoff was settled. The spin-off went through, but Bailey's autonomy was guaranteed and Janus benefited by getting access to the capital it needs to build a major Internet presence. Yet another imperative pushing for a lift in performance was the paradox of how to deal with the penalties of success. So much new money was pouring in that the funds were becoming increasingly difficult to manage. Size is a mixed blessing in the fund business. It generates more management fees, but compromises the ability to take sizable positions that will have a measurable impact on performance. Big money demands high liquidity, issues with enough floating shares available to minimize the price impact of major buys and sells. The universe is a limited one. Driven by the huge sums increasingly devil-may-care investors were shoveling into the market, money managers crowded into many of the same high-tech names. As liquidity tightened, price swings widened, Multiples tore through the roof, and so did risk levels. Chief Investment Officer Jim Craig was getting gun-shy. Janus and Janus 20 were typically run at lower risk levels than more aggressive counterparts such as the Kansas City-based PBHG Large Cap 20 and Large Cap Growth Funds. Jim Craig, as mentor and Chief Investment Officer, had held consistently to a conservative growth-at-a-reasonable-price doctrine. The research, as always, was bottom-up, insistence on strong fundamentals. The emphasis on valuations was also ironclad, but only when the price-earnings multiple was lower than the next year's projected earnings growth, sell when multiples exceed earnings growth. Thus, a stock growing at 30% a year and selling for 15 times earnings was a real buy, and at 30 times earning and a 15% growth an obvious sell. Rising valuations aside, Craig was deeply skeptical of the technology stocks that had been catching fire. As he told Kiplinger's personal finance magazine as early as 1993, I'm thoroughly convinced there's no franchise to these businesses. Product cycles are so fast that it's difficult for them to make money. There's no barrier to new competitors, continued Craig. A couple of engineers in their garage can make a supercomputer. Even IBM has finally fallen. They all will. The volatility of a few bad buys deepened Craig's skepticism. He was getting ready to sell a slug of electronic data services, only to see it drop 20% in a single day on a bum earnings report before he could kick the stuff out the door.
so Craig kept his core holdings close to what he calls steady eddies, conservative picks like Colgate-Palmolive, Coca-Cola, and Computer Sciences. Though he thought of himself as the world's worst technology investor, Craig didn't shy entirely from the field. The difficulty was that too many tech stocks went zipping through his price earnings growth limits at high velocity. Clinging to bedrock discipline meant that Craig all too often was selling too soon. Exhibit A, Pfizer. In 1996, recalled Craig, I sold about 30% of our position in Pfizer when the price got to be 23 times our estimate for 1998 earnings. The stock was soon trading at more than twice that multiple. Object lesson. I had to say to myself that I was naive and foolish to sell Pfizer when I did. There were many such sales as a manic market pushed on to levels Craig thought unsustainable. I sold Cisco Systems when it reached a valuation level I thought was too high, recalls Craig, only to buy it back a year later, up another forty to fifty percent. The same thing happened to Microsoft, he adds. With a turnover of well over 100%, hard put to find quality growth at the right price, Craig was running performance-deadening cash positions that sometimes got as high as 20% of assets. Looking for the market to snap, Craig was also heavily diversified, carrying well over 100 stocks. I was always guarding the downside, he said. Time for some soul searching. Thanks to the wide grant of autonomy Bailey has instilled in the Janus culture, at least two other managers were approaching the market with a more aggressive tilt than Craig. Scott Schetzel, for one, seconded out of Janus Olympus to replace the departed Marsico, Schetzel gave Janus Twenty a thorough house cleaning. He cut the number of stocks in the portfolio for a sharper focus, dumped a number of cyclical stocks that had been in the fund for ballast, and brought in such new economy names as AOL. Other more conservative managers began drifting in the same direction. In the end, so did Craig. He decided that he was trying to run big money the way he had run small money. I was too reactive, he says, too cautious to realize that Janus was in the midst of an unbelievable, unpredictable, inexplicable bull market where the rules and regulations regarding valuation parameters were being busted left and right. Tech stocks Craig had viewed as struggling for franchise values a few years earlier were suddenly a lot easier to identify. Companies like Intel, Microsoft, AOL, and Cisco had all crushed their competitors to emerge as top dogs. Craig stopped looking at price multiples as a major determinant and focused more on cash flow and return on equity. If they're increasing, he says, I'm not that concerned about the PE relative to the growth rate. I've recognized that valuable companies making themselves more valuable deserve a premium. In short, GARP, growth at a reasonable price, was out. A once useful analytical tool was downplayed in an investment environment demanding immediate results, or else. Craig had decided to ride the tiger. It was a radical change. In the new philosophy, paying 200 times earnings for a company like AOL would not be too much. As Janus Mercury manager Warren Lammert told Forbes, companies can grow into a valuation if they deliver on earnings. The reverse isn't true. Reasonable price won't protect you from non-performance. 
focus was very much part of the new look. Craig more than halved the number of stocks in his portfolio from 140 to 65, allowing that diversification led to mediocrity. Tech names such as Cadence Design Systems, Maxim Integrated Products, and Texas Instruments quickly mounted to 25% of Janus Fund assets, the top 10 stocks to some 40% of assets. Craig had to resolve a personal dilemma. He conceded that he didn't sleep as well under the new dispensation. But he was also troubled by the missed opportunities that went with his more conservative bent. In fact, Craig himself was being market-driven. A rising share of Janus's new business was coming from supermarket sellers like Charles Schwab & Company, driven by financial advisors whose necks were also on the performance line. I had to change my style, says Craig. We were being paid to be active. The change in style quickly percolated through the rest of the funds. Even the conservatively run equity income fund was soon showing chunks of Microsoft and Cisco systems. The generally good performance elicited a wariness from some fund analysts. I was skeptical hearing about these changes, thinking it was late in the game to decide to go with the flow a little more, said Christine Benz of Morningstar Incorporated, the Chicago-based fund rating outfit. The shift brought higher risk and volatility, but once committed, Craig lost no time putting Janus on the board. Early one bright April afternoon in 1999, for example, eyeing a sagging market 45 minutes before the close, Craig plunged about $1 billion into the likes of Time Warner, Sun Microsystems, Tyco International, and Walmart. And he had certainly taken to hanging on to winners. The high turnover prompted by his earlier caution dropped by more than half from 130% to 60% of the Janus Fund portfolio. The payoff was immediate. In the two years following the strategy lift, Janus and Janus 20 handily beat the market and most competitors by double digits. As a group in 1999, Janus's 19 equity funds, according to Morningstar, generated an average return of 76%, almost twice as much as the second-best complex, the AIM family of funds. As ever, new cash followed performance. Assets swelled 130% to $249 billion, making Janus the United States' fifth-largest fund manager. Three years earlier, the group ran 12th, with assets of $68 billion. Tom Bailey tended to emphasize performance rather than the asset growth that was compounding Janus' advisory profits. This is not about asset growth, he told reporters. If it was about asset growth, we wouldn't have closed half the funds. If it was about asset growth, continued Bailey, we'd be opening five funds a year and I'd be hiring portfolio managers all over the place. That's not what we're about. We're about trying to get to that area roughly around first quartile performance and add value to shareholders. That's the sole focus of this firm. Still, Bailey's unquenchable competitive fire was compounding the higher risk levels he had taken on in the switch from the old standard of growth at a reasonable price. As a business decision, the shift in emphasis could not be faulted. Bailey and Craig had got the temper of the times right. Sharper performance brought in so much more new money that Janus vaulted to a remarkable number three, behind Fidelity and Vanguard, among direct sellers of funds. Soon, 28 cents out of every dollar invested in mutual funds was being ticketed to Janus, and the group was so swamped that eight of the biggest funds were closed to new money.
The risks of not cranking up the strategy could be seen in the slowed headway of the T. Rowe Price Group, the gilt-edged pioneer name of growth stock funds. As wary of runaway valuations as the converted Jim Craig had been earlier, the price funds stuck to the traditional strategy of growth at a reasonable price. Performance slipped, redemptions rose, and the management company's own stock price fell to the point where price began to be mentioned as a takeover candidate. It was an ironic riff on founder T. Rowe Price's urging colleagues to get out of growth stocks before the 1973 to 1974 crash. The costs of not following the old man's advice, a decade of stagnation, were burned in management memory. Looking back on the experience, T. Rowe Price Chairman George Roach recently noted that tech stocks are just not going to slip this latest sell-off and go up to new highs. You are going to require a period to repair it, he said. Bailey had been hurt in 1973 to 1974, too, but was not haunted by history. By the end of fiscal 1999, big winners like Sun Microsystems, Cisco, and Nokia were beginning to pop up in almost all of the Janus major funds. Comcast, Sun, and Cisco alone, for example, accounted for about 15% of Janus Fund's $35.8 billion in assets. The latter two stocks made up 12% of Janus 20's $28.7 billion in assets. More broadly, there were 17 overlaps among the top 10 holdings of Janus Fund, Janus 20, Worldwide, and Mercury. Most prominent among the common holdings, AOL Time Warner, Cisco, AOL, Nokia, Sprint, EMC, and AT&T Liberty. Even the conservatively run Balanced Fund was holding goodly chunks of cable outfits like Comcast and Viacom. The concentration was an inevitable result of Janus's decision to go where the growth was, but the overlapping big bets on so many volatile high-tech names worried some analysts. Morningstar's Christine Benz, for one, argued that the core holdings tended to make the funds act a lot alike, so that owning more than one of them could increase risk rather than provide the higher level of diversification conservative investors might be looking for. Predictably, when tech stocks got clocked big time, concentration in them left Bailey particularly vulnerable. Most of the Janus funds fell faster than the market as a whole. Top holdings like AOL Time Warner and Cisco Systems were off 50% or more. Janus 20, in a whirlwind 60 days, lost 20% of its value. It's not as if the Janus portfolio managers were caught flat-footed. A half-dozen had moved defensively into cash positions as uncharacteristically high as 17% of assets. Though some of the managers agreed on many of the major holdings spread across the funds, you can see their autonomy at work in a comparison of Bailey's two biggies, Janus 20 and Janus. Janus 20's Scott Schetzel, for example, for three years hands running, had been warning investors that outsized returns were not sustainable. He was among those who upped his cash position, but otherwise made few concessions to the prospect of a major sell-off. He even eased low-risk standards like Fannie Mae and Walmart out of the portfolio in favor of more adventurous names like Network Solutions and Ether Systems, soon hammered to well under their highs. Janus Fund's Blaine Rollins, on the other hand, took on a more conservative coloration. He unloaded a big stake of cell phone companies and jacked up his holdings of defensive stocks like United Parcel. Rollins also took on ballast, along with a half-dozen colleagues, 
with a big slug of low multiple Boeing Company. The range of strategic shifts showed that adversity had not chilled the Bailey doctrine of letting a thousand flowers bloom among his portfolio managers. Some seemed to be edging out of tech to a broader reach of core holdings in pharmaceutical and energy stocks. Others remained convinced that a lot of still promising tech stocks had been thrown out with the bathwater. They unswervingly continued buying into suddenly unhot stocks like radio broadcast behemoth Clear Channel's Communications and cable big Comcast Corporation. Multiples on many such stocks had dropped so far so fast that Janus could almost argue it was once again edging into the comfort zone of growth at a reasonable price. Still, even with a lot of water wrung out of them, fading favorites did not look all that cheap at 50 times earnings. As that famous tech skeptic Warren Buffett told Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, there is nothing obvious to us that the sector is a good buy or undervalued. Janus, in keeping with its aggressive style, continued to do some buying in the teeth of unhappy earnings surprises, but was cautious about what it took on. Seeming bargain prices were not necessarily cheap. The trick was to distinguish the impact of panicky selling from changes in underlying basics. Contrarians with iron nerves might have thought Cisco a terrific buy at 18, down from a high of 82, but Bailey's managers chopped total holdings of the company by more than a third, from 180 million shares, 2.5% of outstanding, to just under 100 million shares. Big chunks of semiconductor producer Texas Instruments, fiber optics supplier JDS Uniphase, and other denuded favorites also went out the window. I've lowered exposure where I didn't see earnings visibility and was concerned about fundamentals, Janice Mercury's Warren Lammert told Morningstar senior analyst Kunal Kapoor. Some of the seeming inviolates it now developed were no more immune to downturns in the economy than less glamorous peers. Unsettled by the $50 billion chunk of fast-declining market gouged out of asset values, worried investors at one point were cashing in Janice shares at the rate of a billion dollars a day. Sticking to its guns, Janus was taking long bets on the quality of its own research. In general, Bailey was holding and or adding to a core of familiar tech names. Nokia, GE, Comcast, AOL Time Warner, that had done so well on the upside. Some were now down 60% or more from their highs, dizzying dissents that in Warren Lammert's view discounted a lot of bad news. The now winnowed group might ship still more water short term, went the rationale, but the long-term payoff was still there. I've tried to maintain a core of holdings in technology that I think will be market share winners as we go through a very difficult economic environment, said Warren Lammert. A few other canny institutional investors were also hoovering up quantities of what they regarded as merely interrupted growth at distress prices. Yes, multiples were down, but still very high by historical standards. Janus hadn't done any better at predicting the killer reversal in high-tech capital spending than the great Panjandrum himself, Federal Reserve Board Chairman Alan Greenspan. The slowdown has been much sharper than I expected, as have the price declines in the technology group, said Warren Lammert. So was Tom Bailey's much-vaunted research living up to its press clippings? The jury is still out on that question and will be for some time to come. Within the limits of his larger strategy, you have to give Bailey a qualified yes. 
the heavily concentrated Janus 20, for example, was among the worst hit. But by closing it, and seven other stablemates, Bailey was in effect limiting risk. Shutting the till saved many investors from socking away more new money at the wrong time. The logic of Janus' tight stock selection, good for extraordinary gains in 1998 and 1999, drove it into huge positions that could not be unwound overnight. Thus Janus 20, like Bailey's other most assertive offerings, has to be seen as mainly a one-track animal. The nature of the beast is to run well ahead of the pack in rising markets, well behind in sell-offs. Investors who neglect to diversify against that phenomenon are not getting the message. Except for people willing to shoot crap against the market, growth stocks are definitely not a short-term play. The key question is whether Janus has gotten the long-term right. If it hasn't, Bailey will pay the price for his doggedness. He's got one thing working for him. In the main, shareholders are hanging tough. A comparatively low level of redemption suggested investors were betting they would come out all right in the end. The past offered some comfort, maybe even for those who got in at the top. Enrolling three-year periods over two decades, Janus had generally outperformed the market. Comfort, but no guarantees. Over most of that period, Bailey had played a much more conservative hand. The flagship Janus Fund, for example, was far more diversified and growth at a reasonable price, rather than momentum-driven buying, was the rule. The souped-up funds of today are a totally different breed. Will they do as well in the future as in the past? Probably not. Certainly not until the next new wave of growth gathers force in what seems to be a repetitive pattern of discovery, rising stock mania, and ultimate crash. In the 1960s, as Forbes has noted, the catalyst was the mainframe computer. In the 1970s, the mini-computer. In the 1980s, the PC. In the 1990s, the Internet. Is Janus' research still sharp enough to beat the crowd to the next big thing? Janus is no longer quite the same organization. Jim Craig, intense and haggard at age 44, has gone to run his family foundation. He cashed in his Janus stock for $78 million and was extraordinarily candid on how the quest for high performance had become a synonym for burnout. There is a limit to the time you can endure one stress followed by another, Craig told reporters. You have one big year, you wake up the next morning, it's another year and you've got to do it all over again. Craig's mentoring would be missed and his departure left Tom Bailey without an anointed successor. Bailey reassured his troops that he planned to stay in control for a long time to come. Still, sale of half of his remaining Janus stock for estate reasons and $610 million offered an easy inference that Bailey was easing out at what he saw as a market top. Would some of his talented young managers follow suit? Where is Janus heading? More reassuring than the portent of purely statistical past performance was a continuing show of self-questioning and fierce internal debate. They demonstrate that Janus's biggest asset, its culture, is still alive and well. Some managers felt free enough to concede that they had gone overboard on tech stocks. I think we were caught up in over-enthusiasm for everything in technology, said Warren Lammert. We got a little carried away and valuation insensitive in some of the technology and telecom names, added Janus Worldwide co-manager Lawrence Chang. 
Bailey himself conceded there was some risk that Janus analysts, committed to getting close to the companies they followed, might begin seeing things through management eyes. We recognize that danger and are trying to do something about it, he said. Thus, Janus managers are not coming on as high-tech hotshots, glorying in past successes. Persevere in hard times, counsels Bailey. We're going to go on doing exactly what we're doing today, he says. Doing work on the companies, the competitors, and the suppliers, because in the end, what you're buying is a business. Living, breathing things run by people. There have been mistakes. A real shocker in the case of WebMD Corporation, a highly touted health portal linking doctors, patients, and insurance companies that unaccountedly imploded. Trapped in the debris with a private purchase of almost a billion dollars in difficult-to-sell restricted WebMD shares were three Janus funds, Global Life Sciences, Global Technology, and Janus 20. As the web's troubles deepened, Janus's billion-dollar holding withered to a fair market value of just under $125 million. This huge bath underscored the dangers of concentrating big holdings across several funds. Janus had also been stung by comparatively illiquid holdings in a half-dozen or so IPOs. They were great on the upside, deadly on the downside. So why didn't Tom Bailey take a leaf from old T. Rowe Price's book and preserve his gains by shifting to a more conservative stance? Would Janus have done better if it had diversified more broadly and retreated to its more traditional strategy of growth at a reasonable price? Short-term, yes. Janus 20, for example, sold off far more sharply than the more cautious Rowe Price Growth Stock Fund. Some of Bailey's glory day gains were wiped out, but over the last five years, at this writing, Janus 20 still trumps the average row price return to shareholders by more than 25%. Risk does have its rewards. We're paid to manage growth, says Bailey. We aren't market timers. Still, the magnitude of Janus lost values is a sharp reminder that risk and volatility are the price of admission to aggressive growth investing. Growth is a revolving door. Over the last three decades, according to value-oriented Sanford Bernstein and Company, the average high-tech stock had only one chance in three of maintaining growth status for five years, only one chance in nine of doing so for ten years. Does that mean that the conservative investors should stick with value? That it's safer to waltz with Ben Graham and Marty Whitman than to swing with T. Rowe Price and Tom Bailey? Nope. It just means that both schools take on different coloration in different phases of the market. It's no blinding epiphany to say that both are best bought cheap or that you can never go broke taking profits off the table. How to measure cheap? Buy Marty Whitman or Tom Bailey when they are clearly out of phase. Homework helps. Even such rudimentary precautions as tracking earnings multiples and return on equity help to keep the malarial pull of irrational exuberance at bay. Janus may be the god of new beginnings, but he's been looking both ways for a long, long time. Chapter 5 Swindle of the Century Anthony DeAngelis In reach and consequences, it was the swindle of the century. The first faint intimation of havoc came in a sparse two-line statement from the New York Stock Exchange. Gathering momentum like an avalanche, the con would cost panicky investors millions in market losses. Bust two old-line brokerage firms and a clutch of commodity exporters, 
and relieve some of the United States' smartest financial names, in current terms, of an embarrassing $2.5 billion. Unfolding, as yet unrecognized, was a morality play full of enduring lessons for investors. Among them, markets almost always overreact and panics are almost always a buy. Almost all major fraud feeds on phony assets. Accountants and securities analysts almost never get it straight. Greed is almost always a more disorienting drive than sex or the political itch. The exchange itself had no sense of the carnage to come behind the simple statement that it was auditing two member firms because a big commodities customer had run into serious financial difficulties. Neither the firms nor the customer was identified. For the moment, it seemed only that the exchange was dealing with an unusual but not alarming set of circumstances. The customer unaccountably had failed to come up to scratch on margin. Money borrowed against commodity futures he was trading in big volume through the firms. They, in turn, had borrowed heavily from the banks on their own to cover for him and had slipped slightly below the minimum capital they were required to keep on hand. Taking a quick pass at the numbers, the exchange did not see a serious enough impairment to suspend the two well-established firms, Ira Haupt and Company and J.R. Williston and Bean. Beyond the seeming calm at the stock exchange, there was yet another hint of calamity. For the second successive day, soybean oil futures on the Chicago Board of Trade and cottonseed oil contracts on the New York Produce Exchange were being routed in unprecedented volume by speculators betting on a major drop in prices. Across the Hudson River in Newark, New Jersey, there was yet another unrecognized portent. Allied Crude Vegetable Oil Refining Company, the biggest vendor of commodity oils in the U.S. Food for Peace program, was filing a bankruptcy petition showing some $200 million in liabilities. In nearby Bayonne, New Jersey, yet another mysterious strand was being teased into place. Hurriedly assigned surveyors prowled in confusion the surreal limits of the sprawling storage tank farm that was Allied Crude's headquarters. The commodity oils that Allied processed and held for sale to big export customers like Bunge Corporation were stored in dozens of 42-foot-high cylindrical tanks linked by a tinker-toy tangle of connecting pipes and valves. Wayward clouds of steam from the tank's heating units drifted erratically around the surveyors, and oil-saturated mud sucked at their boots as they searched for the 160 million pounds of soybean oil Bunge Corporation had asked them to make sure was in place. Stored in four specifically designated tanks, the stuff was worth about $15 million. Bunge had been stuck with some bounced checks. Worried about the solidity of Allied Crude's finances, the exporter wanted to make doubly sure that its oil was on tap. Making their way through a maze of undifferentiated tanks, the surveyors first reported that all was well. Ordered to take a second look, they came back with hardly credible intelligence. The calibrations now showed that only one of the bunge tanks was full to its floating top with what appeared to be soybean oil. Two were empty and one was half full. Pandemonium. Where was the missing oil? Could 160 million pounds of it in the space of four short hours somehow have been siphoned into the interconnected tanks on the now suspect Allied Crude's backlot? To move that much oil in that little time was a physical impossibility. The uproar spread from the Bunge surveyors to employees of American Express Warehousing, a subsidiary of the American Express Company. 
Its task, as independent custodian of the farm, was to measure and certify the amount of oil Allied had sequestered in its own and customers' tanks. The certification was crucial. Allied, backed by the blue-chip name, financed its own business by borrowing against warehouse receipts issued by the Amex Co. subsidiary. The paper was collateralized by the oil Allied held in its tanks, a long-established practice in the commodities trade. With American Express on the job as a third-party cop, the banks and exporters that had been routinely lending Allied and the tens of millions on warehouse paper had nothing to worry about. Or did they? Where was the missing bunge oil? What missing oil, rasped the Amex co-custodians? They had released it to Allied two days ago on signed bunge orders. Into the midst of this peevish dialogue at the tank farm plunged bankruptcy court-appointed attorneys also in search of oil. It was their job to nail down Allied crude assets of any kind and pay off creditors whose own lawyers over the next several days began to show up outside the tank farm like suppliant depositors in a 1930s bank run. Kept at bay by security guards the bankruptcy attorneys had posted, the creditors' representatives swapped indignities about the paucity of information with newsmen who had also begun to show up in force. Yet another posse of lawyers was milling about in the Haupt conference room in New York. They were trying to learn why a series of Haupt checks, mounting in the millions, had bounced, then on arrival, in the cashier's cages of such top banks as Chase Manhattan and Morgan Guarantee. Except for the prospect that thousands of innocent investors might get hurt if Haupt or Williams went bust, the imbroglio was beginning to take on the dimensions of farce. Lawyers were running around everywhere like a bunch of keystone cops in pinstripes. As one frustrated attorney in the clamoring mob in the Haupt conference room put it, the most difficult thing is to find anyone who knows what the problem is. The produce exchange, panicked by runaway selling, offered no better insight than anyone else in the commodity trade. It peremptorily decided to shut down trading for a day. It ordered the liquidation of cottonseed oil contracts at settlement prices that added heavily to the brokerage firm's woes. Everyone had a piece of the puzzle. No one could put it together. Bunge, in hot pursuit of its missing oil, charged American Express with abdicating its custodial obligations. The missing oil, the exporter contended in a New Jersey state court, had been released to Allied on forged orders and surreptitiously pumped into adjoining tanks. Bunge wasn't talking missing oil. It was talking stolen oil. Were the warehouse subsidiary's troubles serious enough to endanger its blue-chip parent? Howard Clark, the can-do president of American Express, was off on a field trip to Bayonne. After climbing to the summit of several 42-foot-high tanks and peering through hatch covers, he talked to newsmen. He assured them that the mystery of the missing oil would soon be resolved. Of course, hedged Clark, there's quite a lot of confusion out there, as you can imagine. Some of the confusion was already reflected in the price of American Express stock. There was no telling what kind of liabilities the warehouse subsidiary was facing. With every likelihood, the parent would have to pick up the tab. This became all too clear when American Express Warehousing filed a bankruptcy petition showing liabilities of $144 million against assets of only $363,683. Adding to the confusion was American Express's reverence for tradition. 
Rather than take on the Teflon protection of the corporate form, American chose to cling to the joint stock company charter under which it had been formed 115 years before. Tradition has its price. Anachronistically, if American Express couldn't meet its obligations, shareholders would have to assume them. The possibility was theoretical, remote as Ultima Thule. The travel business was booming, but institutional shareholders, worried about their own potential exposure, began to sell the stock down from 65 to a low of 35. It was one more worrisome sign of the panicky herd instinct creeping into the market. Thanks partly to Clark's field trip, the confusion at Haupt was deepening into despair. American Express, sensing deep trouble, disavowed the $18.5 million in warehouse receipts the brokerage firm was holding against loans to Allied Crude as out-and-out forgeries. Forgeries? Who was the forger? Stock exchange auditors, beginning to sense the full dimensions of the brokerage firm's troubles, suspended both Haupt and Williston for being unable to meet current obligations. It was only the second time in its long history that the exchange had shut down a member firm for insolvency. The sense of crisis sharpened as investors who attempted to close out accounts were turned away, and some banks refused to honor Haupt checks. To some it smelled of 1929, but the circumstances could not have been more different. Profits were up, interest rates stable, and the economy moving. But psychology once again trumped reason. Ancient flawed memories of the Great Crash brought heavy selling into the market, even as the big board managed to get Williston and Bean back into business with a bridge loan of less than a million. The exchange then turned to the far more intractable issue of a rescue plan for Haupt. The exchange was fearful that the heavy press notice stirred by the plight of Haupt's locked-in customers would continue to hang over the market and trigger a run on other member firms. Haupt's condition was far worse than originally thought. It had gone to the banks to cover Allied Crude's unmet margin calls and owed more than a dozen of them well over $35 million. It was on the hook for who knew how much more in apparently phony warehouse receipts. Then there was the $100 million or so in securities Haupt clients had bought on margin. These two in the ordinary course of business had been pledged with banks. The Haupt partners... Young men, predominantly in their thirties, their personal resources at risk, had long since run out of credit. There was no standby mechanism the exchange could call up to get the firm out of hock. Any one of the Haupt bank creditors could push the firm into bankruptcy. This very real threat could tie up Haupt's clients for years and make hash of the big board's costly promotional efforts to bring Wall Street to Main Street. The much-feared possibility of a run on Wall Street was hardening into reality at the Bayonne tank farm. Rumors that the amount of collateralized oil in storage fell many millions short of the warehouse receipts outstanding were sweeping the trade. Traffic jammed the narrow approach roads to the farm as representatives of creditors as far afield as Rotterdam and Zurich were in search of not just vegetable oils, but such other pledged oddments as tallow and fish oil. The lenders fared no better in getting their assets released than the beleaguered investors at Haupt. Nathan Ravine, the short, snappish chief of the bankruptcy court-appointed lawyers, was badgered by so many conflicting claims that he got a writ banning withdrawals of any kind from the farm. Nothing was going out pending yet another survey of the tanks and the warehouse receipts behind them. The reports were not encouraging. 
At least two of Bunge's supposedly segregated tanks were now found to contain not soybean oil, but gasoline. Others were loaded with sludge and seawater. More confounding still, missing oil seemed to correlate with a whole series of tanks that could not be found in the confines of one of Allied's related entities, Harbor Tank Storage Company. It too had generated a spate of warehouse receipts. A partner in one export house, a major customer of Allied Crude, summed up the air of consternation at Bayonne. I couldn't believe that anyone in his right mind was giving out certificates that have no merchandise behind them, he told the Wall Street Journal. I expect that as little as I expect you to take a revolver and shoot me because you don't like the color of my suit. That's exactly the same thing. It wasn't just missing oil and missing tanks. There was quite a lot of cash missing, too, as a read of Allied Crude's bank accounts showed. Shortages of one kind or other might mean that Wall Street and as many as 50 banks were out as much as $200 million. For perspective on the shockwaves following that discovery, consider the incredulity sweeping the market over recent federal charges that the former chairman and former vice chairman of Sendent Corporation had brought some $500 million in bogus reported earnings to a merger with the motel and auto rental concern. While all others around him were losing their heads, Allied Crude lead bankruptcy attorney Nathan Ravine kept his. He called in the FBI. Then real panic struck. It was November 22, 1963. Bulletin. Dallas, November 22, AP. President Kennedy was shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She cried, Oh, no! The motorcade sped on. The bulletin moved over the AP wires just before 12.30 p.m. Suddenly, switchboards everywhere were jammed. Husbands called wives, wives called friends. Church pews filled. A stunned nation crowded in knots around transistor radios, bunched in front of tavern TVs, fearing the worst. Rumors raced through the streets. Johnson was dead, too. Shot. No, he'd had a heart attack. U.S. military units around the world were put on instant alert. Half the Strategic Air Command bomber force idled on runways. Some 600 other aircraft were already in the air, homing on pre-assigned targets. At 1.33 p.m., the grim news became official. President John Kennedy died at approximately 1 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time today here in Dallas. He died of a gunshot wound in the brain. Vice President Johnson was sworn as president in the gold-upholstered conference room of Air Force One, taking his oath on the small leather-bound Bible John Kennedy kept in his aft bedroom. At the stock exchange... Officials had scheduled another go-round with Haupt's partners. Its problems were summarily pigeonholed as panic over the Kennedy assassination swept the floor. Record sales, all of them on down ticks, swamped the tape. Fully one-third of the 6.6 .6 million shares that changed hands were thrown at the market in the seven minutes before the exchange halted trading at 2.07 p.m., some 83 minutes before the regular close at 3.30 p.m. The last trade did not clear the tape until 2.49 p.m. Panic fed on panic as reported prices lagged far behind what was actually happening on the floor. The Dow Jones average gave up 21 points, for the time a very big move that wiped out more than $11 billion in market values and set off a blizzard of margin calls. 
The SEC faulted floor traders and specialists for not doing a better job keeping price spreads under control. But the real demon was the one that haunts every bad moment in the marketplace, the herd instinct. People in markets often behave like crowds at a theater fire, all running toward the same exit, says Forbes columnist David Dreeman. Myopia rules as investors get immersed in the details of the situation and lose a sense of proportion. Often they get blindsided by a series of events. The sharp market break of May 1962, but not the equally sharp recovery, was still in memory. And the impact of the Haupt suspension still had not been absorbed when word of the Kennedy assassination struck. No question that markets tend to overreact to bad news. True catastrophes, 1929 and 1973 to 1974, are rare and bear markets typically bucket back to new highs within a year or so. In the Kennedy soybean oil sell-off, high-flying Nifty 50 stocks such as Xerox, off 73 points from its high in a week of troubles, and Polaroid, off 40 from the high, got hammered on heavy volume, just as the likes of Microsoft and Lucent got their lumps in the great technology sell-off of the last two years. What's the lesson that runs from the Allied crude swindle market to today? Fear drives all such surges. Behavioral psychologists talk of thought contagion, a herd instinct that propels selling, or buying, frenzies simply because others are doing so. Call it the hula hoop or tulip bulb phenomenon. The tendency is exacerbated these days by delusion spread through the instant communication of the Internet. Pros are no more immune to these emotional pulls than the newest hotshot day trader. Ralph Wanger, president of the multi-billion Acorn Investment Trust, recalls his own emotional state when the market fell off the cliff on October 19, 1987. I was shaken, says Wanger. What we had made in a year we lost in a week. Wanger sold some stocks at the best prices he could get, bought others dirt cheap, and on the whole now believes that he would have been just as well off staying pat. If you are holding some really long gains, it's probably prudent to take some money off the table from time to time, rather than get caught in the sort of stampede that drove hot tech stocks into the stratosphere and then into the cellar. A time of seemingly acute trouble is not a time to sell. It's often a time to buy. If the market is climbing a wall of worry, inflation, declining profits, a war scare, wait to see what happens. Better to make a rational decision than to be swept along with the crowd. Many who sold into the Kennedy salad oil swindle break paid a sizable premium to get back into the market. One exemplar of the virtues of having the cool to exploit bad news? Warren Buffett. Scoping American Express through the clutter of the swindle, he saw a first-class franchise with all growth engines intact. And cheap. Bucking conventional analysis, wrong as usual at a crucial turn in the market, Buffett put $13 million into American Express, some 40% of his partnership assets, and picked up 5% of American Express at a low of $35 a share. Over the next two years, the stock tripled, and Buffett walked away with a $20 million profit. The turnaround in the market generally, as it usually does, came from a return to basics. 
The economy was strong, and Lyndon Johnson had the nation's confidence. There was also a big push from the good news that the exchange over the weekend had worked out a plan to free up the Haupt accounts and make sure the customers would not be out of pocket. The key was an unparalleled assessment against other member firms. The Haupt rescue did nothing to resolve the unknowns that set it in motion: missing oil, missing storage tanks, missing money. Also conspicuously missing was the one person who might have all of the pieces to the puzzle up his sleeve: Anthony DeAngelis, president and chief shareholder of Allied Crude. DeAngelis, fifty, was nowhere to be found at the tank farm. Even his lawyer hadn't seen DeAngelis since the company's hastily prepared bankruptcy petition had first been rejected and then presented with less skimpy financials a day later. The court-appointed attorneys charged with unraveling Allied's affairs staked out both the suite DeAngelis regularly occupied in a midtown Manhattan hotel and his estranged wife's home in suburban New Jersey, with no success. In the inevitable tabloidies, DeAngelis had become a mystery man. What did he have to hide? High school dropout and one of an immigrant rail worker's five children, DeAngelis was very much the self-made man. In a few short years, he had become Mr. Vegetable Oil, making big money out of a strategy that put Allied Crude at the hub of a thriving export trade. He was prospering with a major assist from the heavily subsidized U.S. Food for Peace program, American idealism wrapped around a hard-headed commercial core. Supervised by the Agriculture Department. The program provided edible oils and other commodities on the cheap to hungry nations abroad. The humanitarian aim of feeding a less favored world not coincidentally helped to keep domestic farm prices high, and farm state legislators happy, by shunting surpluses off market. The Angelus, whose early ventures had been in the meat and tallow trade, saw an opportunity in a middleman's role: buy soybean oil and cottonseed oil from crushers in the Midwest. Refine the product in the East, sell to exporters at water's edge. Logistically, the Bayonne tank farm fit DeAngelis's specifications like a glove. It had good rail, barge, and deep water connections, and the bulk space he needed to hold processed oil for such well-established exporters as Bunge Corporation and Continental Grain Company. Starting with five hundred thousand dollars in capital, DeAngelis whipped the tank farm, long a petroleum storage area, into shape. In a major coup, he persuaded American Express Warehousing to take over as custodian. The connection enabled DeAngelis to bootstrap his thin financials by borrowing against inventory certified by Amexco and its eminently negotiable warehouse receipts. In the same way, he took on additional loans at premium rates from his pleased export clients to build the newest and most efficient refinery in the trade. Soon, DeAngelis himself was barnstorming foreign markets, drumming up orders that pushed Allied Crude's revenues and those of half a dozen satellites to some two hundred million dollars a year. By the early 1960s, Anthony DeAngelis was supplying some 75 percent of the edible oils being ticketed abroad. Quite a distinction for the short, five feet five inches, rotund, well over two hundred pounds, figure who'd started out as a butcher boy in the Bronx. DeAngelis had a rag-to-riches story to tell. Why was he hiding out? Why had Allied Crude so suddenly gone down the tubes? 
Newsmen fired those questions at DeAngelis as he finally surfaced in response to a subpoena eight harrowing days after he put Allied crude into bankruptcy. The bankruptcy court, painted the usual institutional bile green, was jammed with creditors' lawyers. Jockeying for seats, briefcases and yellow legal pads much in evidence, they craned toward the door for their first view of DeAngelis as he sparred with the press in the corridor and obligingly posed for photographers. The mystery man was very much the archetypal small businessman. White shirt, dark tie, ballpoint pens sticking out of his breast pocket like the barrels of a carburetor. DeAngelis had not come alone. Convoying him through the crowd of newsmen was the well-connected criminal lawyer Walter D. Van Riper, a former judge and state attorney general. Elegant in bold stripes, sonorous, a lawyer of the old school, Van Riper begged bankruptcy referee William H. Tallon to know that DeAngelis retained him only an hour before. Van Riper needed several days to confer with his new client. A reasonable request, because DeAngelis might incriminate himself. I don't know that he would, if he testified at this time. Tallon ritualistically ordered DeAngelis to testify. DeAngelis eased his bulk into the witness chair and went through a mantra rare for a civil bankruptcy proceeding. Question. What is your official position with Allied crude vegetable oil refining? Answer. I respectfully decline to answer because to do so would tend to incriminate me. Elucidating the now obvious, Van Riper intoned that DeAngelis, for now, will refuse to answer all further questions. That brought the day to a standstill. The bankruptcy referee had no power to force DeAngelis to testify. Only a federal judge could rule on Fifth Amendment issues. Still a mystery man, black-rimmed spectacles framing iron-gray hair, DeAngelis posed for a couple more photographs and was wafted off in his waiting Cadillac. The salad oil debacle had taken an abrupt adversarial turn that intensified the journalistic dig into DeAngelis's past. What did lay hidden behind the cover of the Fifth Amendment? The beginnings were prosaic enough. Starting out as an apprentice butcher, DeAngelis, known by the diminutive Tino to family and friends, sharpened his skills at the City Provision Company, a major hog-cutter in the Bronx. In later years, DeAngelis talked of his exceptional ability in knowing how to process hogs. In 1938, the 23-year-old DeAngelis set out on his own, putting $2,000 in savings into an outfit called M&D Hog Cutters. Never bashful about his business acumen, DeAngelis liked to recall that he helped pioneer a major change in the way the business worked. Porkers that used to be shipped live from the Midwest to the East were instead slaughtered in the farm belt and shipped as slabs for further reduction by packers like M&D. Whatever the paternity, the change brought major efficiencies to the trade. It may have been a model for the logistics later brought to bear on Allied crude, move partly processed commodities from the Midwest to New York for further upgrading and sale in eastern markets. By all accounts, DeAngelis was an important enough supplier of meat to the government in World War II to have been exempt from military service. Married now, with a son, DeAngelis prospered, boasting in later years that he had managed to sock away one million dollars for the family, in case anything happened. Post-war, DeAngelis began looking to the foreign markets he later tapped with Allied crude. 
One of his first such ventures was a syndicate formed to sell one million dollars worth of lard to the Yugoslav government. Tino himself negotiated the deal and put his customary charitable spin on it. The people DeAngelis had seen queuing outside food shops were so badly off, some with burlap on their feet, that he generously gave the Yugoslavs a full year to pay. He was stung by ingratitude. A suit charging that the newly formed DeAngelis Packing Company had shipped substandard stuff. DeAngelis settled the claim for one hundred thousand dollars. Newsmen probing the silent DeAngelis's background found that paying to make business scrapes go away was a way of life with him. When the German government complained about substandard lard, Tino settled that one too. There was the agriculture department complaint that DeAngelis had fobbed off some two million pounds of uninspected meat on the federal school lunch program, and short-weighted it to boot. Also in the agriculture department dossier were a series of other administrative complaints: shipping illegal vegetable oil, rancid vegetable oil, vegetable oil in leaky containers. All were settled. More serious still was a wrangle with the Securities Exchange Commission. The SEC charged that DeAngelis had understated losses in a publicly owned meatpacker he took over. Creditors subsequently forced the firm, the Adolf Gobel Company, into bankruptcy. Yet another SEC charge grew out of the Gobel case. The allegation was that DeAngelis had talked a witness into recanting damaging testimony that Tino had been borrowing money against phantom lard inventories. The engineering of phony assets had been very much in the news. Texan Billy Saul Estes, churchgoer and family man, had just taken farmers across the Southwest for $150 million by persuading them to invest in liquid fertilizer tanks. The smooth-talking Estes conjured up an impressive facade on paper, but the fertilizer tanks behind the facade existed only in his fevered imagination and that of his beguiled marks. The fertilizer was an illusion too. Out of the slammer six years later, Estes went right back to his old trade, this time borrowing against the collateral of phantom oil field cleaning equipment. Estes was part of a solid phantomist tradition in American business, going back to the turn of the century and the long-running star turn of Philip Musica. The protean Musica was at that point in his career a wig maker. Operating out of New York, he euchred a score of banks out of a million. Using doctored invoices collateralized by the long human hair he was supposedly importing from his native Italy. Caught, Musica emerged from jail with a new persona. As Frank Costa, producer of hair tonic, he was entitled at the height of prohibition to five thousand gallons of pure alcohol a month. The bootlegger Costa then morphed into F. Donald Coster, respective physician, president, and major shareholder of the ninety-three-year-old drug wholesaler McKesson and Robbins. McKesson prospered handsomely through the crash of 1929 and most of the depression. In 1937, the edifice of imaginative acquisitions, phony invoices, and fake audit collapsed under its own dead weight. More than twenty million dollars worth of drug inventories proved to be fictitious, as did the warehouses in which they were stored. Does the shade of F. Donald Coster still haunt McKesson? In 1999, the company acquired the healthcare information provider HBO and Company in a $12 billion stock deal. It then discovered that HBO had systematically been booking software sales that hadn't actually been completed, an accounting impropriety that forced McKesson to restate earnings. 
Investors responded by knocking some $9 billion off McKesson's market value. Coster at least had the decency to commit suicide when he was caught. But one of the major considerations in the HBO acquisition was the accelerated vesting of McKesson management stock options. Going forward in the history of scam, there were the phony insurance policies of Equity Funding Corporation and the phony job contracts of Barry Minko's ZZZZ Best, all swallowed whole by fevered investors and bankers. In the early stages, the suspicion that Tino DeAngelis might be handling paper, too, was little heard. There was, after all, the probity of American Express behind those warehouse receipts, and the naive trust in the sanctity of audits that continues to bedevil securities analysts and investors today. Companies working overtime to make their numbers routinely inflate revenues early by kicking inventory out the door, or hype earnings by cutting reserves for inventory obsolescence, all under the rubric of standard accounting procedures. Qualitatively, how does that differ from fudging on warehouse receipts? In the commodity trade as elsewhere, aggressive accounting was a given. Much of the background on DeAngelis was spelled out in routine credit reports, but none of the questions raised hurt him in the trade. Business is business. DeAngelis was selling oil at sharply competitive prices, with only rare protest, he paid high interest rates on the increasing amount of borrowed money piggybacking into Allied crude on warehouse receipts. Though very much the rising tycoon, Tino was not for the high life. I've had only one ambition in life, success, he said in his grandiloquent way. Even as a kid, work came first. I partook very little of the gay life. On rare occasions, DeAngelis could be spotted in an out-of-the-way saloon in Greenwich Village, quietly watching television with his companion, Lillian Pascarelli, a smartly-turned-out divorcee who was on the Allied crude payroll as a social hostess. DeAngelis had anteed the $40,000 down payment on the roomy Pascarelli home in suburban Tenafly, New Jersey, a few miles from the George Washington Bridge, on the pleasingly green reverse slope of the Palisades. Tino's estranged wife lived in Tenafly, too, not far from the others in Tino's set. They included Leo Bracconeri, Tino's brother-in-law and Allied's plant manager, Ben Rotello, Allied's controller, and George Bitter, one of Allied's chief commodity traders. Foreign buyers were sometimes entertained at the Pascarelli home, and in summer the Allied crude crowd enjoyed one another's company at backyard barbecues. DeAngelis's suburban cronies were the nucleus of a tight-knit group of twenty or so that kept the Bayonne plant humming. There were a number of DeAngelis cousins on the payroll, all in a family circle where Tino often rewarded good work with handsome cash bonuses and the occasional gift of a Cadillac. DeAngelis' good works were many. He'd been an enthusiastic cyclist in his youth. In more rotund later years, Tino boasted that, Bicycle racing developed me physically. I possess exceptional strength in my hands and legs. DeAngelis showed his gratitude to the sport by donating bicycles and the gold DeAngelis Cup to local racing clubs. The DeAngelis philanthropy wasn't limited to sport. There were the chimes he gave to a Jersey City church, donations to the building drives of Greenville Hospital in Jersey City, Tino was on the board, and a Jewish home for the aged. DeAngelis was famous for carrying around wads of cash and peeling off big bills whenever he was touched by a hard luck story. 
$500 for an old rail worker friend who was having a hard time meeting a son's college bills. Florist bills in the thousands, all year round to different people that would die and to funerals or this or that. Also, there were peace offerings to the odd foreign customer who might show up at the Bayonne office, complaining of leaking salad oil drums. And medical expenses picked up for a seriously ill agriculture department inspector who had been assigned to the Bayonne plant. Many of the DeAngelis benefactions seemed to come from checks drawn against Allied Crude's petty cash account. Since something like $450,000 had gone through the account in the months before Allied lurched into bankruptcy, the court-appointed attorneys were hot to learn where it had all gone. How much of it had stuck to DeAngelis and his pals? They were equally curious about the $63,500 DeAngelis had withdrawn against cash in much the same period from a personal bank account. For a guy drawing $100,000 a year in salary, DeAngelis seemed to have an inordinate amount of cash tucked away in unbusiness-like, non-interest-bearing checking accounts. Still pending was the question of whether DeAngelis could be prodded into talking about such things. In a quickie second appearance in bankruptcy court, DeAngelis again took the fifth. Attorney Walter Van Riper argued his client had no alternative, considering the volume of press coverage, alleging gross improprieties on his part. Hailed before a federal judge on a contempt charge, DeAngelis altered his strategy. He agreed to answer more than 40 of the 60 questions he had finessed in bankruptcy court, with the proviso that the federal court would rule question by question on any other queries he chose not to answer. Back to the bankruptcy court, then, where DeAngelis continued to obfuscate, well aware that he was now also the target of a federal grand jury investigation. Two days before Christmas, the grand jury charged DeAngelis with 18 counts of moving $39.4 million in forged warehouse receipts in interstate commerce. Theoretical maximum penalty? 180 years in jail and a $180,000 fine. Courthouse buffs were betting that more indictments were in the works. Smaller fish, given promises of immunity, might well be pressured into giving up the kingfish himself. The government case, largely circumstantial, could use some reinforcement. However non-communicative in court, DeAngelis was now on a first-name basis with the gaggle of reporters following in his wake. Powerful forces have teamed with the federal government to put the little fellow out of business, Tino told at one impromptu press conference. All he had tried to do was expand the export trade so soybean growers could get another 25 cents a bushel and the powerful interests didn't like it. Like the chimes of the Jersey City Church and the Jewish Home for the Aged, the farmers of the Midwest were suddenly part of the DeAngelis benefice. Tino's canonical mood was shattered by the equally sudden invocation of an obscure scrap of New Jersey law. Rarely invoked, it provides that defendants in a civil suit can be made to post bonds equal to the damages sought or go to jail.